Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest today, best-selling author, Michelle Seiler-Tucker, author of Exit Rich and CEO of Seiler-Tucker Incorporated. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello, everyone. And people, as I mentioned to Michelle, that we have listeners from over 30 countries, and we heard one of them say hi today, and she's from Sweden, where my daughter and son-in-law will be moving back to mid-December. So, Michelle, please tell us about your background and your expertise. Sure. So, I, I believe, you know, I, I've always been an entrepreneur. Even as a child, I was an entrepreneur, and I've always owned different types of businesses. But then I kind of got sucked into corporate America, working for Xerox. And my nickname at Xerox was The Closer. So when the salespeople couldn't close deals, they always bought me in. And about six months after being employed at Xerox, my management team came to me and said, Michelle, you really should interview for regional manager and move on up the corporate ladder at Xerox. And she said, well, you'll, you'll never get it, but you should apply. And I'm like, well, if I'm not going to get it, why should I apply for it? And she said, because of the experience. So I did that. And it was a three-month grueling process for, where I interviewed with several different high-level executives from Xerox. I did end up getting the position. So I got promoted to um, regional manager, over 85 salespeople in the South. And I was just, you know, I really missed selling and I really missed solving my customers' problems. So I got stuck in a position where I was managing other people. So I started to look for, I was going to keep Xerox because it was six figures, great benefits, but I started looking for a business I could buy. And I stumbled across a franchise uh, that had a few locations. Uh, one of the owners knew my husband. So I said, look, I want to buy a franchise. I'm going to, you know, have people, hire people to operate it and I'm going to keep Xerox. And they said, no, we don't want you to buy a franchise. We want you to partner with us because we know of you, we know of your reputation. We want you to become a partner. And I said, well, I'm not going to leave a six-figure position with great benefits for a company that has two franchise locations. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do it for six months. I'll keep my position at Xerox. Weekends and evenings, I'll fly out to different trade shows and see how it goes. Within six months, I doubled what I made an entire year at Xerox and went ahead and resigned and left my six-figure career behind. Um, I ended up selling hundreds upon hundreds of franchises uh, as a partner. But then this company did what most companies do. They sell, sell, sell. They stop servicing. They never really built a solid foundation to handle the clients. So they ended up, they, they started to crumble. So they were over-promising and under-delivering and not really taking care of the franchisees. And these franchisees are my friends. I mean, I was in their weddings. I went to their hospital beds when they had babies. I would stay at their house, you know, when I came into town. So I ended up going back to the franchisor and saying, look, I can't continue to do this because 
our values are not aligned, you know, um, there's no way that I can continue. So I had them buy me out. And that's when I transitioned into selling companies. And I transitioned to selling smaller companies in the beginning. But then I transitioned into selling businesses over $10 million and up. My company and I have sold over 1,000 businesses. I've done thousands upon thousands of valuations. I also partner with business owners because I learned very quickly that eight out of 10 businesses will not sell. So if I don't fix the businesses and help grow the companies and build them to sell, then I'll starve to death. So I started buying, selling, fixing, growing companies, which is really what my core competencies are. And I partner with business owners. I will invest my, um, my money, my energy, my expertise, my resources to help business owners build a business that's actually sellable. So that's kind of my story. And I, at any given time, I will own five to 10 different businesses. Uh, right now, I'm in medical technology and graphics. Is that, uh, and how many did you say you have five right now? I have six. And, and what are the others in? So I have medical and we have 10 medical locations, multidisciplinary. And I have a vehicle, a graphics company and a technology company. Awesome, awesome. So you wrote um, another book before this one. What was that yep. book? So that book in 2013 was called Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth. And that was written in 2013. I also wrote a contributing chapter to Think and Grow Rich. And then I also wrote a book that I have not published yet that's on the buy side of how to grow your business through acquisitions. And then I wrote Exit Rich, which is coming out in January um, of 2021. It was supposed to come out in 2020, but because of COVID, we had to pivot and we're coming out in 2021. However, you can purchase Exit Rich now at exitrichbook.com. And we'll make sure everybody gets that link. Sure. We'll, we'll send it to everybody. So why did you write this particular book? So the reason I wrote, the reason I wrote Exit Rich is because the business landscape has changed so dramatically. It used to be back in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016. I'm not sure exactly what year things started changing, but it used to be that 85 to 95% of all startups would go out of business, right? We know that. So startups from one to five years are at great risk of going out of business, were, were at great risk for going out of business. But now things have changed dramatically. When I wrote Exit Rich in 2019 and did the same research, I learned that only 30% of startups will go out of business. Only 30% of startups, those businesses from one to five years, will go out of business. But out of 27.6 million companies, 27.6 million businesses that have been in business for 10 years or longer, 70% of those companies will now go out of business, 70%. So it's flipped. It used to be that if you could be in business over five years, you know, you're golden, right? Your risk factor decreases dramatically, but not now. You hear about the big box stores all the time. The public companies like Toys R Us went out of business. Toys R Us, they've been in business for decades. Kmart, JCPenney's, Montgomery Ward, GNC just closed down 900 locations. Steinmart just went out of business. Starbucks is in trouble. But what you're not hearing about are all the private companies on every street corner in every town in every state across our great nation, these businesses are dropping like flies. And this was before COVID. Now they say every nine seconds, a business is closing. And unfortunately, these, these business owners, many of them are baby boomers. They're going to be forced into selling for pennies on a dollar, closing their business, 
or even worse, filing bankruptcy. And guess what? When you file bankruptcy, you don't just lose your business assets. In most cases, you will lose your personal assets too, because most business owners pierce the corporate veil because they sign a personal guarantee or they take out a business loan and put up their house for collateral. So that's why I wrote Exit Rich, because it's my mission, my passion to try to help save as many business owners as I can from going out of business. Oh, why do you think that is? I mean, why? you're right. I mean, years ago, if in fact you made it to five years, you're probably going to make it 15, 20, or whenever you decided to sell, you weren't going to go out of business. Yeah. Why do you think that that's changed? So here, here's why that is. The big reason, companies stop AIM. A-I-M, write that down. If you're taking notes, write that down. AIM. You should always innovate and market. Always innovate and market. The way that consumers purchase products and services now has changed dramatically because the companies have changed that. The companies have created new buying habits. Think of Amazon. The way you do, the way you used to shop for products and services, clothes, everything is completely different than the way you shop now. Yes or no? Raise your hand. Uh -huh. Raise your hand. The way you shop now is completely different than the way you used to shop. And that's because of Amazon. You can practically buy anything on Amazon. You can even buy a horse and practically have it delivered in two days. So Amazon has changed the way that people do business. So whoever makes it easiest for the consumer to purchase products and services is the company that's going to win. Amazon is winning because they make it easy to do business with them. So what happens to business owners, they've been in business for 10 years or longer, these business owners become complacent. Remember Blockbuster? Blockbuster was huge. And Blockbuster saw Netflix come in and Blockbuster did nothing to innovate whatsoever. They sat back fat and happy and did nothing, and now they're out of business. Well, these business owners stop innovating and they stop marketing. Guess what else they do? They stop asking their clients, what do you need? What do you want? How have your needs and wants changed? And how can I make it easier for you to do business with me and my company? They stop asking consumer, consumers that. And then a lot of these companies have been in business 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Their consumers, their clients are aging out and they've never replaced them. So that's why they stopped innovating. Toys R Us was in business for over, gosh, for what, I think they started in like, I don't know, but they've been in business 60, 80, 90 years. Do you, did Toys R Us ever innovate? Did they ever do anything different? No, they built their business after the grocery store box store where they stack toys really, really high, just like they do in a grocery store chain. And they never changed anything. They never innovated. You have to change with technology and everything that we have today. Consumers, buyers don't want to go to the mall anymore. They don't want to have to go to the store anymore. They don't want to have to fight that traffic. They don't want to get in a car when they can just order everything online. So that's why businesses are going out of business because they stop innovating and marketing. Yeah, and you know, only 10% of the for, uh, Fortune 500 are still in existence today. Only 10%. Right. And we've seen what happens to stalwarts like General Electric, who'd been there forever. And now two years ago, uh, they were taken off the uh, the 500 
and uh, I mean, of the uh, with the top 25 companies. And who gets excited about General Electric anymore? They stopped innovating in IBM. But but that's the big companies. Think about the small companies. You know, there's 30.2 million, and I know you got 30 countries here, but there's 30.2 million people. I mean, I'm sorry, 30.2 million businesses in the United States employing over half the U.S. workforce. And if 70% of these businesses go out of business, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have a huge loss of jobs. You're going to have a trickle down effect because when you lose jobs, it hurts the economy because people stop spending. Michelle, one of the questions that we're being asked is Jeff Bezos is my most epic network failure at the Vasa Museum in 2002. Not going to do that again. What are your criteria uh, for engaging with entrepreneurs and startups? What is my criteria for engaging with entrepreneurs and startups? Yes. Well, that, that's that's a difficult question because it depends upon what level of engagement we're talking about. Are we talking about engaging me to sell your company or engaging me to help you to build to sell your company or engaging me to partner with you? What level of engagement are we talking about? So uh, maybe you could just address both of those if there were a startup. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so brief because we have so much to cover. Yeah, we do. And I really want to get into some of the principles of the book of Exit Rich. But, um, you know, if it's somebody that wants to sell their business, we always have a free consultation. We'll all talk to that business owner, take them through a series of questions, um, see if they're a good fit. And when I say a good fit, a lot of times sellers want to sell their business, but they have unrealistic expectations. So I take sellers through a seller sanity check. And we do do a free consultation for sellers to see, you know, is it a good fit for us to take them on for a client? But is it a good for, fit for them to even sell their business right now? Okay. As far as me helping them to build, to grow and partnering with them, it really has to be almost a perfect fit because if I'm going to partner with somebody, it's like a marriage, <laughs> you know, we have to date for a while. Uh -huh. But, you know, I want to make sure that we have synergies. I want to make sure our values are aligned. I want to make sure our ethics are aligned. I want to make sure that the business is in a niche and, you know, and then something that I can add value to. Also, I want to make sure it's an industry that I'm excited about. I'll probably never get in like the food business. I'll never get into restaurants or anything like that. Um, it's it's got to be something that serves a higher purpose, something that has a niche. And I really got to feel confident. Um, that my synergies align with the business owner. Does that answer the question? I think so. Uh, in your book, okay. you mentioned that eight out of 10 businesses don't sell. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's not just me saying that. That's also Steve Forbes that says that. And Steve Forbes actually endorsed Exit Rich. And the reason why eight out of 10 businesses don't sell, well, there's a lots of reasons, but let me just narrow it down for you. The number one reason is that business owners never plan their exit. Most business owners, maybe other than you, Mark, never think about selling their business until they absolutely have to, till they have to due to a catastrophic event. And that could be external or internal catastrophic event. So when a catastrophic event occurs, your business is typically trending down. It's not doing as well. The best time to sell your business is when your business is doing well, is the best time to sell. So you got to plan your exit from the beginning. So, well, I know that that question is coming up later. So we'll answer that question later, but plan your exit from the beginning. Here's another reason why businesses don't sell because when they think about it, because of a catastrophic event, they'll come to me and say, Michelle, I want to sell my business for $20 million. Okay. How did you come up with that number? Well, that's what I need to retire on. 
That's what I need to travel around the world. That's what I need to pay for $5 weddings and put them through college. And it's all about what they need. It's not about what the business value is actually worth. So buyers are never going to pay you for what you need for your lifestyle. Buyers are only going to pay you the value of your business. So therefore, a lot of these owners can't afford to sell because they're upside down in debt. Or they don't have the money to get out or they got a mortgage on their home. Um, the other reason businesses don't sell is because they're not operating on all six cylinders, what I call all six P's. And we talk about six P's and exit rich. I can go through the six P's now. Yeah, if please, you like, go, ahead. go through those later. It's one of my okay. questions. So please go ahead. So when you build a business, you want to build a business on this. You got to build a solid foundation. Remember the franchisor? They did not build a solid foundation and their whole empire came crushing down because they cannot ha handle the growth of the operation. You got to build your foundation. So number one P is people. You don't build a business. You build people and people build the business. You have to have the right people in the right seats. And you have to ask yourself who, who in my business opens the doors? Who in my business handles customer service? Who in my business handles customer complaints? Who handles product distribution? Who handles manufacturing? Who handles accounting? Who handles environmental issues? Who handles tax issues? And the big thing is never put your name next to the who. Your name should never go next to who. You are the visionary. You are the business owner. You should work in the business, not in the business. Never put your name next to the who. So you got to make sure you have the right people in the right seats and make sure everybody's name is next to every who except for yours as the business owner. It's very important. Now, you also got to ask yourself, do I have the right mix of employees versus 1099s? So in America, you know, I'm selling a manufacturing company right now, and they have 150 1099s working in their manufacturing plant. That is a big no-no. That company is about, look, if they have one catastrophic event happen, one catastrophic injury, that is going to put that company out of business. Plus, all the employees will probably file suit because they're 1099s when they should really be W-2s, and it can literally put them out of business. What we had to do was do the math to convert all the 1099s over to W-2s because that's going to change the EBITDA of the company. EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So people is huge. Buyers want to buy a business, not a job. They want to make sure you also have a management. They want to make sure you have tenured em employees that are going to stay. And they would like to have a management team, of a, a CFO, a COO, chief operating officer, general manager, etc. So people is number one. Number two is product. Number two is huge product. Ask yourself, is your industry on the way up or on the way out? Are you thriving or dying? Do you have an Amazon on your hands or do you have a Blockbuster? And ask yourself this question. If you have a Blockbuster and you feel like you're about to go out of business, it's never too late to save your company. Ask, this, ask yourself this question. Because this one question, these two questions could really change your business forever. Number one, what business are you in? What business are you in? Now, let me give you an example. Have any of you watched the movie, The Founder? Oh, yeah. Okay. Any hands going up, The Founder? Okay. It's a story. Everybody should go watch The Founder. It's a movie based upon McDonald's, McDonald's restaurant. 
Okay. McDonald's. So Ray Kroc, McDonald's are not the ones, not the, not the individuals that grew McDonald's. Ray Kroc came in and grew McDonald's. So the movie is based upon those two, th those men. So Ray Kroc is in, is in the bank trying to borrow money. Guess what he did? He took, he already took out a business loan and mortgage and leveraged his home. Plus he was upside down. Remember I told you not to ever take out a business loan and put your home up for, for collateral because you just pierced your corporate veil. So that's what he did. So he's in the bank trying to borrow more money because the franchisees are not being compliant and he's really not making any money. So he walks out of the bank. This gentleman follows him outside and he says, can I ask you a question? He goes, sure. He goes, what business are you in? He goes, well, I'm in the restaurant business. He said, no, what business are you in? And Ray Kroc goes, I'm in the restaurant business. And a gentleman said, what business should you be in? Now write that question down. What business should you be in? And Ray says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, you should be in the real estate business. Because if you're in the real estate business, you buy up all the real estate, you build the buildings, you lease it to the franchisees. If the franchisees are not compliant, then you void their contract and you put somebody else in there. Now you have all the equity to borrow money against. That one question, what two questions, what business are you in? What business should you be in? Completely changed his business. Now, McDonald's is the largest real estate holding company in the world because of that those two questions. Here's another, here's another example, Amazon. When they started, what business were they in? Books, they sold books. Amazon asked themselves, what business are we in? We're on books. What did we do really, really, really well? And they said, we do fulfillment really, really, really well. Well, what business should we be in? We shouldn't be in the book business. We should be in the fulfillment business. So in product, ask yourself those two questions and become transformational instead of transactional. It could change your business. So let's circle back here a little bit because you mentioned this in the book. You said, when you're starting out, you gotta think of the end before you get started. Talk about that. Yeah, so that's the STGPS exit, but can I just take them through the rest of the six Ps? Absolutely. Okay, so the third P is processes. Processes are huge and typically never developed at the beginning of starting a company. They're typically developed out of necessity because a customer complaint, there was an issue, you know, it came out of customer dissatisfaction. Processes should always be started in the beginning and should be designed with the customer experience in mind. They should be productive and efficient. And when I say designed with the customer experience in mind, here's what I mean by that. McDonald's, I'm going to use the same example. McDonald's, watch the movie The Founder. Back in the 40s, you had all of these drive-up restaurants that people, wait, waiters and waitresses came out on roller skates. The, food, the order would always be wrong. It would be cold, and it would take forever to get your food. McDonald's said, what do we want to create? We want to create good quality food that tastes great, and you can get it under two minutes. That was their objective. That was their mission statement. They went out to an empty tennis court, took all their employees, mapped out the processes of who's going to take the order, who's going to toast the bun, who's going to cook the burger, who's going to put the pickles on the bun, who's going to give it back to the client. They mapped out that process for hours. That's why no matter where you are, if you're in Sweden, if you're in Hong Kong, if you're in Russia, wherever you go, the McDonald's experience is the same 
because of their processes. So process is huge. Number four P is proprietary. Proprietary is the biggest value driver. Proprietary will, will get you the highest multiple on the sale of your business. There are six pillars to proprietary. Number one, how well-branded are you? The more well-branded you are, as long as your business is still relevant in the minds of consumers, will get you a lot of money for your company. Guess what brand is the biggest? Anybody want to, anybody know? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Apple, $389 billion just for the brand. That's not assets, cash flow, real estate, inventory, anything else. Coca-Cola brand is worth $89 billion. Build your brand, build your exit, exit rich. Okay. So branding is huge. Here's another thing, trademarks. So many business owners get a local state trademark, but they never get a federal trademark to protect their company name. I have a lot of clients that have, that have received a cease and desist letter to stop using their company name, and they spent thousands upon thousands to fight this, and they end up having to change their company name after all. So make sure you get a federal trademark. Also, you can trademark your slogans if you have anything unique. Um, get patents if you have an, an invention that you want to protect. The other big value driver that nobody thinks about are contracts. So agreements with manufacturers, agreements with vendors, agreements with distributors, the most valuable type of agreement are client agreements. I have a landscape, commercial landscape company we're selling. It's got about 500 commercial contracts. It's reoccurring revenue. <laughs> Buyers want to buy residual income. Now, here's a caveat to contracts. You got to make sure your contracts are transferable. If they're not, your deal will fall apart. 99.9% .9 of all deals are asset sales, not stock sales. <clears throat> and if your contracts are not transferable, then that deal could fall apart. There's a two sentence clause that you need to put in your contracts. And I will tell you, 99.9% .9 of business owners never have that clause. Okay. Here's the other thing, database. If you have a huge database and it can be repurposed and retargeted, then I can get you a lot of money for that. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp. 19 billion. WhatsApp was making zero. In fact, they were losing money. They were hemorrhaging. But they had a billion users and WhatsApp knew they could ROI that and they can monetize that investment. So databases are huge. If you're in e-commerce and let's say that you sell bed sheets and you're number one on Wayfair, that is prime real estate that another e-commerce would love to have. Let's say you sell a unique coffee pot and you have a patent and nobody else sells this and you've cornered the market on Amazon. That's huge. Let's say you have a skincare company and you have Glenn Beck or Rush Lombard or some celebrity endorsing your real estate, endorsing your skincare company. They can only endorse one skincare company. That's huge. Okay. That brings a lot of value. So the fifth P is patrons. You got to ask yourself, are your client base diversified or do you have customer concentration? If 80 or 90% of your revenue is tied up in a few customers, then you're in big trouble of going out of business. You also want to make sure your clients are not aging out. So you want to make sure you have diversified clients. They're not aging out. And you should be asking your clients, what do you need? What do you want? How can I make it easier to do business with you, with me? And then the last one, the most important one is profits. Everybody's in business to make money.
But I'm going to tell you, profits are never, ever the problem. Profits are the symptom of not operating on one of the other five Ps. If you don't have the right people in place, you're going to have a profit issue. If your product is on the way out and not on the way up, you're going to have a, pro a profit issue. If your processes are not designed with the customer experience in mind and you're losing customers and they're not productive and efficient, you're going to lose money. If you haven't protected your IP, you're going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to protect it. So profits is never, ever the problem. It's always a symptom. Those are the six Ps. And they're all in exit rich. Excellent, excellent. So let's go back to the beginning. And you said in your book, mm -hmm. you got a plan from the very start about how you're going to exit. Talk about that. You do. And, and this is a mistake that I see. I, I'm going to tell you, I've never met a business owner, and I've met thousands upon thousands. I've never met a business owner to actually plan their exit. You know, and what they should be doing is planning their exit from their beginning. So the day starting a business or buying a business, you should ask yourself, okay, what is my plan here? When do I want to exit my business and at what price? So it's like, I call it the Siler Tucker GPS exit. When you want to go somewhere, what do you do? You pull out your phone, right? And you plug in your destination. You know where you're going. The GPS knows where you're starting from. So it's going to map out the quickest path, the quickest road to get you from point A to point B. Same thing with the Siler Tucker GPS exit model. Plug in your destination. What do you want to sell your business for? Let's say you want to sell your business for $10 million. And let's say you have a manufacturing business. You want to sell it for $10 million. What do you need to know now? Now you need to know what is it worth? Where am I starting from? What is my valuation? So if you have a $10 million company and today you're worth a million, you'll also be surprised how many business owners don't know what, you're, what they're worth. So you need to always know your current value. So let's say you're starting at a million, you want to get to 10 million. What do you need to know next? Your time frame. How soon do you want to sell for $10 million? Let's say you want to sell for $10 million in five years. All right, so now you figured it out. I want to sell for $10 million. I'm worth a million. I want to sell for five years. Reverse engineer it. Who are your buyers going to be? There's five different types of buyers. Which buyer is going to buy a $10 million engineer, uh, a manufacturing company? Okay. Once you determine who the buyer is, then what's their buying criteria? What are they looking for? What, what do they need from a number standpoint to pay $10 million? Meaning, what does the gross revenues need to be? What does the cost of goods need to be? What does the EBITDA have to be at? So to sell a manufacturing business for $10 million, your EBITDA has got to be at least $2 million, at least. Okay. So if you don't know how to do this stuff, you call somebody like me, an M&A expert, because I could tell you what buyers buy what, exactly what their buying criteria is, exactly what the numbers have to be. And then they don't buy businesses. They're not operating on all six cylinders on all the six P's. Now, the, the fifth step in that process, remember, number one, your destination, number two, your current evaluation, number three, your time, time frame, right? And then who the buyer is going to be, number four. Number five is your why. Why do you want to sell for $10 million? If you don't have a powerful why, you'll never do it. <laughs> you'll never achieve anything worth having unless you have a really strong, powerful why that's going to keep you in the game. Because if it was easy to sell a business for $10 million, everybody would be doing it, right? So you got to have a powerful why. So that's how you really start with the end in mind. Now, how many of you all, all have kids? Can I see your hands if you have kids? Probably everybody, right? 
What do we do when we have kids? Do we plan their future? We plan where they're going to go to preschool. We plan where they're going to go to elementary, where they're going to go to high school, where they're going to go to college. We like to plan what they're going to be. I know Mark likes to plan where they're going to be, (laughs) you know, and we plan out their entire future. But here we have this huge asset, almost valuable asset, our business, and we don't plan for that. It's amazing to me. But that's how you plan. And you just have to reverse engineer it. And you have to know who your buyers are going to be. Now, there's five types of buyers. You want me to tell you the five types, Mark? Absolutely. So first time. So 90% of buyers are first time buyers. These are buyers who buy smaller businesses, typically under two or $3 million. They'll buy coffee shops, restaurants, cafes, retail businesses, things of that nature. Um, first time buyers are very slow to pull the trigger. They typically don't know what they want. You got to make sure you qualify them on how much money they have, but more importantly, how much are they willing to part with? (laughs) Because just because they have it doesn't mean they're going to spend it. And then you really got to qualify them on their interest, on their hobbies, on their strengths, their weaknesses, their passions, you know, what, what is the best business for them. And then you have PEGs. PEGs are private equity groups. And we work with about 3000 PEGs, private equity groups by two ways. They buy based on platforms and add-ons. So let's say a a private equity group wants to get into food manufacturing. They, and they're gonna buy a platform because they don't have one now. Platform means that they won't buy anything less than $3 million in EBITDA. It's gotta have at least $3 million in EBITDA. Some look as high as seven to 10 million in EBITDA for a platform. So let's say they are in food manufacturing and they want to expand. Now they'll look at what's called add-ons. So let's say they're in food manufacturing and they found a frozen food company that they feel is gonna be very synergistic to what they have. They'll look at add-ons for under a million in EBITDA. So you could sell to a private equity group if you have under a million in EBITDA, you just have to sell in the add-on space, not the platform space. Does that make sense? And then we have strategics and competitors. Now, strategics and competitors typically will, especially strategics. Strategics are those, um, are those buyers who are looking to buy synergies. They're looking to buy something that they currently don't have. And if they have it, it will catapult their business to the next level. For instance, I sold a business, um, an oil manufacturing business, and we appraised it for $9.8 million. And they um, had a couple of patents. We have 550 buyers, we have 12 LOIs, we had a strategic that came along that had a similar product and service, but different. The seller had customer concentration. Remember when I talked about Patreons? They had customer concentration. They had 60% of their revenue was tied up in the BP contract. That scared a lot of buyers, but it didn't scare this buyer. This buyer had been trying to get in BP for years and years and years and could never get their feet in the door. So they thought, well, gosh, if I buy this company, I can get all my other products and services in there because now I have an in. So they pay $15 million for 70% of the business for that one contract. So strategics are really the best buyers because they will pay more for synergies. They don't always just focus on the EBITDA. They're focusing on the synergies. Same thing with competitors. Um, but sometimes competitors want to try to get something for nothing and they're not always the best type of buyer. Then the fourth type of buyer is, is, um, a sophisticated serial entrepreneur. I have a buyer that pretty much gives me an offer on everything I have. (laughs) And this buyer has rust. No, this buyer has construction, truck stops, hospitals, 
manufacturing. I mean, he's all across the board. So they're industry agnostic, they're more EBITDA specific. And then the last type of buyer, turnaround specialists. These are buyers that buy distressed assets. They're not going to pay you much for them. They're going to use the money. Uh, they're going to leverage the business and leverage the assets in the business to pay for the business. And then their whole thing is to is to grow it, flip it. So those are the five types of buyers. Michelle, when you're dealing with companies who want to go and sell, is there a minimum amount of revenue that they should have? Is there a minimum profit? How much does it depend on the particular industry? What, what do you? What's the formula here? So you know, it, it's tough to say what's the formula because it depends upon the objective. Um, but it's not so much about revenue; it's more about EBITDA. If, if CPAs are telling you, "Oh, you can get three times revenue or four times revenue," they're lying to you. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you get, you're not going to get a multiple of revenue. You might get a percentage of revenue, but it's mostly a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of seller's discretionary earnings. So so are you asking for me, Mark, like what kind of businesses I take or? No, I'm, I, I mean, in general, not just you, but in general, because I know people are always thinking about, you know, how big is my sales? What's the profit margin? Some people are buying on cash flow. So the name of the game is EBITDA. That is the name of the game. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. You can look at your gross revenues. You can look at your COGS. And it's important to, you know, keep your COGS down, run a tight ship, look at your operating expenses, run a tight ship, because the more of a tight ship you can run, the more EBITDA you will have. Now, when we talk about EBITDA, we also do what I called adjusted EBITDA, where we go in and normalize the financials and we add back personal expenses that are not necessary to run the business. So if you're running meals and travel and entertainment, all these things through the business, that, that's personal, that's discretionary. That's not a true business expense. So we will add that back to EBITDA. Also, we add back non-reoccurring. So let's say, let's say, let's say that you had to move your, like I moved my office from right down the street about five years ago, it cost me $60,000. By the time I was done with build out and furniture and everything else, if I was selling my business, I would add back that $60,000 because I moved once in 20 years. So we always add back personal and non-recurring. Um, but it's always, the name of the game is EBITDA. You know, it's not, yes, gross revenues are great, but if you're grossing $20 million and you don't have any net income, you're losing money, who cares what you're grossing? Because again, buyers are not paying for the gross, they're paying for the EBITDA. Does that answer your question, Mark? It does answer my question. Uh, so one of the things uh, I uh, was wondering is, what percentage of sales are asset sales compared to actually buying the whole corporation? 99%. 99.9% really are asset sales. And the reason for that is because the buyers don't want to buy the seller's liability. And even though a seller might say, I don't have any liability, that's not true. Things can always pop up. So sellers, buyers always prefer to buy an asset sale. They don't want the liability. We can write language into the closing docs, which are hold harmless language and indemnification language, et cetera. But most buyers do not want to buy the stock. They want to buy it as an asset. They want to depreciate the assets because if you buy it as a stock, they can't depreciate the assets. It'll take a much longer. Plus, it's really about buying liability. 
So, you know, they're concerned about any outstanding tax issues, any outstanding um, lawsuits, et cetera. So the only time a sell ever converts to a stock sell is when there's contracts in the business that are not transferable. Um, and there's no way to get around that. So let's say um, I once worked with an office supply company and they had been in business for about 90 years and they had all these federal government contracts and they always had one tax ID number. That's a concern for a buyer. So every now and then you get into situations where it's risk versus reward. And if it's a greater risk to do an asset sale because those contracts won't transfer or it could cause a problem with government contracts or changing the EIN number, then that can convert over to a stock sale. But most of the time it's gonna be an asset sale. Are there industries that just don't sell regardless of the success? And what types of businesses are hardest to sell? No, it's really not about industry anymore. You know, I've been doing this 20 years and, you know, it's not, now I would tell you manufacturing sells like hotcakes. Anything manufacturing wise sells fast. Staffing sells fast. So there are industries that sell quicker than others, but it's really more about the EBITDA. You know, if you've, because remember, there's five types of buyers. So you really got a buyer for everything. If it's, if it's restaurants you're selling, first time buyers love restaurants because they think it's easy and they don't know any better. So there's really a buyer for everything. Um, so it's not so much now the industry, like I said, there are industries that sell quicker than other industries, but it's more about EBITDA. Like I have buyers that call me up and they're EBITDA specific. They'll say, Michelle, only show me things that are 2 million and up in EBITDA. I don't care about the industry. You write about dreamer businesses. What are they and why do you caution getting into them as an aspiring entrepreneur? So when I, when I wrote the first book, uh, in 2013, and I think I referred to it again in Exit Rich. Um, these, these are businesses, these are business owners that go out and they're like, they have the I can build it and people will come mentality, like Field of Dreams. Remember the movie Field of Dreams? Yeah, of course. I will build it and they will come. And these are dreamer type businesses where, uh, uh, you know, somebody will quit their job, go start a business, have zero, zero, zero experience. They don't do their due diligence. They don't look to see how many other restaurants are around them. They don't really look at any of that stuff. And they go in and they start a business. Well, that's what I call the dreamer business. The problem with that type of business is they come in and they cannibalize other businesses around them. So those other businesses around them lose business for a while because everybody wants to try something new. Everybody wants to go to the new restaurant. How many of you want to go to a new restaurant when you see a new restaurant pop up? So everybody leaves the old restaurants, goes to a new restaurant, but here's what happens. They go to that restaurant, but that restaurant does not have the six Ps. <laughs> they're just training. They're just starting to train their people. They don't really have their processes down yet. And their customer experience is lacking to say the least. So then these people stop going to that restaurant and they go back to their old restaurants and that restaurant ends up going out of business. That's what happens time and time and time and time again. Many of us wondered, and you talked about this in your book, you mentioned this a little bit earlier about WhatsApp and, and they ended up selling for 4 billion in cash and 15 billion in Facebook stock. How do you think they arrived at that number? You know, that's a very good question. I wish I was on the inside uh, yeah, track of there. <laughs> Because again, because again, you know, I don't know, um, I, I don't know all the financials, but I know they were hemorrhaging and they were losing money. So I don't know if Facebook had a methodology that they used, a formula that they used to calculate what those billion users 
uh, would mean to them. Because again, remember, buyers will buy synergies. And if they feel like they can ROI, get a return on their investment and monetize off of that synergy, like my client did, my client overpaid, my client paid 65% more than the appraised value of that oil manufacturing business because he wanted the BP contract. How, how important is it, and I'm sure you probably help your clients with this, and making sure they have at least two interested buyers. Because if you have one, I mean, you're at the mercy of the buyer, right? You absolutely are, and nobody should do that. And that's the problem with, with a lot of sellers. Like, sellers will hire me, and I'll say, well, Michelle, you know, what happens if I sell it? And I said, look, the likelihood of you selling there is something, <laughs> you know, well, what if I bring the buyer? Well, here's the problem. You can bring a buyer all day long, but trying to get that buyer all the way to the closing table takes a lot of experience, a lot of core competencies, a lot of finesse, and a lot of knowing what to do. So you, you really I always tell my clients, never put your eggs in one buyer's basket. And one of the things that we do so well is that we probably have one of the largest buyers database in the industry. We have over 28,000 buyers in our database and these are active buyers. So we can bring 300, 400, 500 buyers. Now, trust me, I don't wear out my seller. My seller's not meeting 550 buyers. I'm disclosing 550 buyers. I'm financially qualifying 550 buyers. It's all systematic. It's all in our CRM. So we're doing everything electronically, but we're getting down to that few, you know, five, 10, 12 buyers that are going to give us LOIs. And you always want to have multiple buyers because number one, we can create a bidding war. So if a buyer is looking to buy, you know, buy Synergy and we have multiple buyers and they know that they'll bid more. You can't create a bidding war if you got one buyer. Yeah, It's very hard if you have two buyers, you need more than two buyers. Plus, most deals fall apart in due diligence. Most deals do. My nickname has always been Humpty Dumpty because I'm the one who always puts the deals back together again when they fall, fall apart. Most deals will fall apart. If it starts to fall apart, we got backup buyers. We don't take it off the market. So you always want to make sure you have backup buyers because deals will fall apart in due diligence. Buyers have buyer's remorse, just like sellers get seller's remorse. So you never want to just deal with one buyer. Yeah, and, and this is probably goes to the next question is, in your book, you talk about the why of selling. Could you explain mm -hmm. that? The why of selling? Yes. I'm trying to remember where I talk about that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I, I think it's it, 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 in the book you talked about, why do you want to sell? And what are you going to do yes. once you do okay, sell? Okay, thank you for giving me that context. So this is very important. And I'm glad you asked that question. So one of the biggest things I do with my clients is I take them through a seller sanity check. Because if, and here's the reason why. If I haven't helped this seller plan their beginning, what they're going to do after the sell, the sell will never happen. So I have to get my seller comfortable with what they're doing next. So I sit down and meet with my sellers and ask them, why do you want to sell? Why do you want to sell? That's a huge question. And let me tell you something. The number one question for buyers is if the business is so good, why is the seller selling? So I always want to know, why are you selling? What do you want to do next? Because if a seller hasn't planned their beginning strategy, they'll never follow through with their exit strategy. And I had, you know, I was selling, and I think I talk about this in my book. I was selling a bed and breakfast 
no, I was selling, I'm sorry, I was selling a business and this, this, these clients kept backing out and I kept bringing good buyers and they would never accept an LOI. And I'm like, guys, you got to get comfortable. I, well, we don't know if we want to sell. I said, well, listen, really think about it. Take, you know, leave for the weekend, go give it some thought and some energy and call me back. Well, they ended up saying, look, we are passionate, husband and wife, we're passionate about bed and breakfasts. We loved it. We loved them when we were young, you know, and that's what we want to do. We want to sell the business. We want to take the proceeds and we want to go buy or start a bed and breakfast. And I said, perfect. And they accepted the next LOI I bought them. So what happens a lot of times with sellers is they get buried. They get buried in the day-to-day um, from you know the, the, what they have to do in their business, right? The day-to-day expectations in the business. They get buried in the day-to-day expectations from the family. And you just kind of bury your passions. Like once you, what you once were passionate about, you forgot. Uh, what, you used to get your juices flowing. You don't do anymore. So I always tell my sellers, go back and think about what used to get you passionate. What did you love to do? If money, if you weren't getting paid for it, what would you do today? If you weren't getting paid for it, what would you do? So, and then I also take them through another series of exercises where I have them, you know, really figure out what do I need to live on? (laughs) You know, how much do I need a month? How much do I need a year? And for how long am I going to live? Because we have to plan it out because if, if, the, if the proceeds of the business is not going to bring enough money for the seller, the seller to retire on, or if they want to buy another business, then they're never going to sell the business. So we really do take them through the whole seller sanity process in the beginning, not in the end. I think that was your question, Mark. Yeah, it is. When you're going through the process of negotiation with a potential buyer, is there a time limit you should give them because... Sometimes these things can stretch out forever and and the management often takes their eye off the ball. I've been through a few um, acquisitions and I remember the first one I was through, me and the two owners, because I was bronze president, we spent more so much time uh, focused on being acquired that we took our eye off the ball. And so then the sell, the buyer started to reduce the price because our sales weren't as robust as they were before, before because we were spending so much time. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I call that time kills deals. Time kills deals. And that's why you really need an experienced advisor to manage the process. Because if you don't have an experienced advisor managing the process, the deal is going to fall apart. And all kinds of things can happen in a deal what you just talked about, taking your eye off the ball, taking uh, the management team, taking their eye off the, the prize and not really running the business to the same level they've been running the business before. I always tell my sellers, don't think about me, just keep your business running, run it as if you're never selling it. And then I manage all the day-to-days, I manage everything else to make sure that that's how it's going to move forward. But here's the issue, time kills deals. I mean, we had a, a tax business we were selling in Dallas and we had a buyer and the um, seller kept dragging her feet, dragging her feet, dragging her feet. Every time the buyer asked for something, it would take forever to get the financials. We finally got everything. We got the LOI. We're moving, forward. We're moving through getting SBA funding. The seller's still dragging her feet, though, and getting the bank what they need. And guess what happened? The government shutdown. The government shutdown happened. The deal fell apart. The seller didn't get to sell it. Now, the seller did some really stupid things, too, <laughs> that I'm not going to get into. 
but time kills deals like COVID. I can't tell you how many deals COVID killed. So you really have and to- That's my that. next question for you about COVID. How's that affecting the market? And is it a buyer's market um, now because of what's happened with COVID? Or should you wait if you're looking to sell your business until uh, the cure is firmly in place? Yeah, I don't know what that background noise is. <laughs> um, I think it's it, construction you know, of my building. Oh, is that construction? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I would say it depends upon the industry, right? So if you're in a manufacturing industry, the manufacturing industry is booming. Sell, 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 sell. If you're in healthcare, it's booming. Staffing is booming. Distribution is booming. Transportation, trucking, logistics is booming. Sell. If you're in hotels, if you're in restaurants, if you're in travel, if you're in any of the industries that are failing right now due to COVID, probably not the best time to sell. But again, it depends upon your situation. Some business owners can't hold on. So some business owners might have to sell or they might have to try to get a partner or they you know, might need to call an advisor to give them some fresh ideas and give them a different perspective a different way to look at things so that they can pivot and stay in business. But is but but I will tell you this, I do want to add one caveat to that. There are more buyers right now, regardless of COVID. There are more buyers right now than ever before that have deep pockets. There are more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to buy. So what does that mean? That means that business owners need to get in gear and build their business using the six P's, increase their EBITDA because there are more buyers than there are good businesses to buy. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And when you say that, are you talking about private equity or individuals or both? That's, that's both. That's private equity. That's strategics. That's competitors. That's both. That's serial entrepreneurs. Not, you know, and there are first time buyers that are buying businesses, they are directing their retirement fund because you can direct a retirement fund in the U.S. and take money out of your retirement fund without paying taxes and penalties as long as you buy a business with it. Uh, what's your advice for the seller on the things to know about the earn out provision of the sale? And should you even accept those? It depends. You know, it depends. So there's never a black and white answer. Um, Earnouts are not always part of the sale. Everybody thinks earnouts are always part of the sale. That's not true. Earnouts are there to bridge the gap. They're there to bridge the pricing gap. So if if a seller's having a great 2020, and that's what we're seeing a lot right now, that business owners are even having a really horrible 2020 or the best 2020 they've ever had. And if it's the best 2020 they've ever had, sellers think, well, I should get paid for this best 2020 I've ever had. No, not so, not, not so fast. Buyers are not going to pay you on one year because that could be an anomaly. So buyers are going to look at a, a 17, 18, 19, or 18, 19, and 2020 average to pay you on. Now, if there's, and then if we run projections and see that that is sustainable and maybe not an anomaly, then to bridge that gap, as a buyer might give you an earnout for that upside. Does that make sense? But it's not a part of every deal, and it depends. It depends. It depends on if they should take it. So I don't charge my. I'm probably the only M&A advisor that doesn't charge my client a percentage of earnout because he might not get it. So therefore, you know, and plus, most owners have to work to get it. They have to stay involved in the business in some capacity. And they might not get it. 
But what I do to protect my sellers, because I'm doing one right now in a dental lab, and they're getting pretty much the value of the business, but they really want that owner to be involved for the next year. And they're going to do an earn out based upon the next three years it is a huge upside. But what they're getting paid cash in is pretty much the value of the business. So I told my seller to, to take it. How much of the cash should you get up front? So if you, I'm just making that up, but if you sell a business for a million dollars, what are you trying to make sure your clients get? How much of it at least that they get up front? The first thing I always do when I do evaluations, I get my businesses pre lender pre-qualified. So if I get it lender pre-qualified and, and the lender says, I'll take 10% down, then the buyer only has to come up with 10% of the million dollars and my client might have to hold 5% and the rest they will get up front. If it's not lender pre-qualified, I don't like my clients to do deals for less than 30%. 40% down if they're going to sell or finance. I want them to have enough skin in the game. Um, and that's on smaller deals. On bigger deals, um, we did an $18 million deal and the buyer put down 70%. But on the smaller deals, if owner financing has to be involved, you know, we'll get our clients 30%, 40%, 50%, as much as we can. I would say don't do anything less than 30% down. And then you got to make sure you have all the securities in place. Sorry, go ahead. How much should a seller budget for the cost to sell the business? Well, it really depends upon the, the size of the business because that varies. That can vary hugely depending upon if you're selling a million dollar business or a hundred million dollar business. But so, is it like a percentage of the sale? Like, should you figure, oh, it's 3% of the sale? It's not really, it's not, it's not really a percentage of the sale. Small businesses, you know, it's typically five to ten thousand dollars for closing fees and all. Uh, larger businesses, it's typically anywhere from thirty thousand to seventy thousand, uh, maybe more. And that that's going to include your legal costs, your accounting costs, making sure that due diligence is right, making sure all the closing ducks are there, making sure that the seller's protected, and then also decreasing the seller's tax liability. Because again. It's not what we sell your business for, it's what you walk away with. Um, one of the questions we have here, what do you think of companies diversifying income channels such as Tesla selling tequila or something? <laughs> I think as long as it's congruent, I think it's great. I think every business should have um, congruent revenue streams and you should have multiple congruent revenue streams. I mean, my business, you know, we get paid selling businesses. We also get paid doing evaluations we are, and then I own other businesses. So I really think it's good for businesses to have congruent revenue streams. You know, that's why that's why you see a lot of AC and heating companies um, also bringing plumbing under one roof, also bringing electrical under one roof, also bringing uh, rehab under one roof because it's a one stop shop. I deal with a lot of family businesses and transitioning from one generation to the next. And some of them just want to give the kids the company. And I'm always for selling them the company because for a variety of reasons. One is, I think, let the bank take uh, take the risk. And who knows, if the kids get in trouble, you might need the money that you've uh, sold the business for to help bail them out. What do you suggest to families who are selling, who have a business? Do they just give it to the kids or the next generation or should they sell it? And what's your experience in this? 
So I think this is happening less and less and less. The, the longer I've been in business, I mean, when I first got into business, you know, there were a lot of families uh, transferring the family business. That's not happening so much anymore. Most of, you know, children don't want their family business. They want to go out and create their own masterpiece. They want to go out and create their own legacy. So I don't really see that happen that much anymore. However, I did have a staffing company in Dallas that um, says, well, my daughter wants it. <laughs> I'm like, are you going to give it to her? And she goes, well, I don't want to. That's our retirement fund. So I never suggest that uh, uh, it depends on the family dynamics. It depends on the family situation. But in most cases, I would say you need to sell that business to your children, not just gift it to them. And that can be a combination of helping them get a loan to buy you out. That could be a combination of seller financing where they just pay you monthly payments for so many years or, you know, for the rest of your life, whatever it works out to be. I always think that they will value it more if there's a value attached to it. What kills a deal? And um, what shouldn't you agree to when you're selling your company? So there's lots of things that kill deals. One thing is time, like we talked about earlier. The other thing that kills deals is attorneys. <laughs> attorneys always kill deals, you know? Because attorneys want to be the smartest, smartest person in the room and they think they know it all and they want to point out all these worst case scenarios. So for me, for my company, I've done this very well. I align myself with the experts. I've been working with firms for like the last 20 years. I control the deal for the most of the most of the time I control the deal. I tell my clients up front, you need to use one of these attorneys because if you don't, then the deal is going to fall apart because whoever loses control loses the deal. Um, so that's a big mistake is not working with the right players, not having the right attorneys, not having the right CPAs, you know, not having the right lenders. Those are big deal killers. As far as what should a client not do? What should a seller not do? Yes. I don't like selling your business for all stock and no cash. I would not do that. I also would not sell your business for probably less than 30% down. Um, I would not sell your business if you're gonna sell a finance without having lots of securities in place. Um, I would not give away your business. <laughs> I'm trying to think about what else you would not do. Um, those, are, <clears throat> those are some of the big things. You know, don't, don't trade for stock. Don't sell your company for stock. You don't know what that stock's gonna look like. By the way, I thought, I thought your advice on getting the right attorney, getting the right accountant, right professionals is dead on because I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and they'll get their friend uh, who's an attorney who they go to church with. And I'll say, how much experience do they have in doing venture type deals? And then I'll, I'll meet the attorney and found out he hadn't done a deal like in 30 years. And, you know, he's so out of touch with the reality of how these, that they can actually kill the deal just in how they negotiated or they don't agree to things that everybody has to. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not an attorney's job to negotiate your deal. Let me repeat that. It is not an attorney's job to negotiate your deal, especially if you have somebody like me. I'm the one that's doing negotiations and I can assure you I am far better than an attorney is at negotiations. It is an attorney's job to take that letter of intent or the purchase agreement and use that to, to craft the legal documentation, 
not to renegotiate the deal. I once had a, a business we were selling. It was a dental lab. I sell lots of dental labs. And um, the, the buyer, the owner of the dental lab, I came and said, look, I have an attorney. They'll do the whole closing for 5000 And this was probably 12 years ago. And my, the buyer said, no, 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 I have my own attorney. It's a family friend. I said, okay, how many deals has he done? He goes, I don't know. He works for a big law firm and they've done lots of deals. So then the owner also wanted his own attorney. So the two attorneys together, the owner's attorney was fine. The seller's attorney was fine. The buyer's attorney was a, was a nut job. And the buyer's attorney kept wanting to renegotiate everything. He would never come to a face-to-face -face meeting. He always wanted to do conference calls. We were two weeks past closing. He was screaming at everybody on the phone and screaming at his client. I finally hung up the phone on him. I picked up the phone and hung it up. <laughs> and then I told the seller and the buyer, I said, look, you guys are going to be partners. You guys are going to be working together for like the next five years. Right now, this attorney is making y'all hate each other. If you want to have a great relationship going forward, you need to stop this. And I told the buyer, I said, the, the attorney works for you. You don't work for him. If you want to do the deal, control your attorney. And he finally did. And we ended up closing. Guess what? Guess what they ended up paying? His family friend cost him $35,000. My seller's attorney charged him thirty, sixty-five thousand dollars $65,000 for a deal I could have got done for five grand. And I, I could have closed that, on time. And I, I could have closed on time. So my last question to you is when somebody is looking to interview a professional like yourself, what should they look for? What kind of questions should they ask? So that's a great question too. And hopefully everybody goes and buys exitrichbook.com and I'll tell them what they'll get for pre-order. For pre but um, there is a chapter in that book that has the 10 questions you should ask or the 20 questions you should ask before choosing an M&A advisor. And the biggest one is how much experience have you had? How many deals have you done? I have personally sold over 500 companies, but I have brokers. So together we've sold over, way over a thousand. So how many deals have you done? What size deals have you done? What industries have you sold in? How many do you sell a year? Where do you sell at? Do you sell businesses all over? Who makes the Very big question right here. Who makes the decisions on the budget in the company on what listings you spend money on? Do you make the decisions as the agent or does the owner make the decisions? Who makes the decisions? Because every listing is assigned a budget of how much marketing they're going to spend on your listing. You need to know that. Also, you need to know, do they have a CRM? Because a lot of brokers walk around with notebooks and they still are not digital. And how many buyers do they have in their buyer database? What's their closing ratio? What's their closing ratio? How many offer out of how many offers they write? How many do they actually close? How many listings that they take do they actually close? Can I tell your listeners, your listeners real quick about the book where they can get it? Yes, absolutely. Exitrichbook.com for pre-sales. And the book is $24.79. $24.79. If you go buy it on Amazon or Hudson or Books a Million or anywhere else, it's $27.97. $24.79 includes shipping. You will receive the digital download. So as soon as you order, you will receive the digital download of the book. So you don't have to wait till it comes out. You'll get the digital download. Plus, you'll get a lifetime membership into the book club, into Exit Rich Book Club. That book club has me doing video training of all these strategies and techniques that we've been talking about. 
Plus it has all the digital downloads. So if you've never seen an employment contract or an operations manual or an organizational chart or approach a sample letter of intent or sample due diligence checklist or sample purchase agreement, closing docs, it's all in there. Every document that you need to sell a business and build a business is in the book membership club. Plus you'll receive 30 days membership into club CEOs where we do Q and A's where we ask questions like what type of business are you in? What business should you be in? And so you get a 30 day free membership into club CEOs where we do Q and A's masterminds and hot seats. And then when the book comes out, it will be shipped to your doorstep. If you live outside the United States, then we will send you the ebook. Okay. Inside the United States, we'll ship the book to your doorstep. Make sense? Awesome. Michelle, thank you so much for having, and, and we look forward even to the next book after this particular book. Yes. Did I get to all you the did. questions from, from all of your listeners? Absolutely. Okay, good. I wouldn't let you off otherwise. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for listening to me. Go buy Exit Rich. So you can exit rich. Everybody have a safe weekend again. Michelle, you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you again for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.